This is Nick Asayan, CEO and founder of Light Helmets. This is episode one of season one of our Light Impact podcast. We welcome you as we will discuss winning at life, adversity, current events, politics, football, and other sports with tip of the spear athletes, warriors, business people, doctors, and other rock stars. Nothing's off limits here. Our guest today is a former chief special warfare operator who retired after 21 years of active duty with Naval Special Warfare, U.S. Navy SEAL teams. He graduated basic underwater demolition SEAL training with Class 200 and spent more than 15 years with SEAL Team 5 in Coronado, California, where he completed nine special operation combat deployments worldwide, including six to Iraq and Afghanistan. His other commands include the Naval Special Warfare Center's Advanced and Basic Training Commands, where he taught a vast array of special operations tactics, techniques, and procedures. His personal awards include the Bronze Star Medal with Combat Valor, the Joint Services Commendation Medal, seven Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medals, three with Combat Valor, the Army Commendation Medal, the Air Force Commendation Medal, the Joint Service Achievement Medal, three Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medals, one with Combat Valor, the Army Achievement Medal, the Combat Action Ribbon, as well as several other campaign medals and awards. Since his retirement, He's working in the film industry as an actor, stuntman, military and technical advisor, director, cinematographer, and producer. He has appeared in a phalanx of movies and television shows from The Tomorrow War, Jack Ryan, Transformers, Bumblebees, 12 Strong, The Magnificent Seven, 13 Hours, America's Secret Soldiers, my personal favorite, Act of Valor, NCIS, The Last Ship, and much more. He recently graduated from Full Sail University with a bachelor's degree in digital cinematography. So welcome, Kevin Kent. You're our victim, episode one, <laughs> season one. And uh, thanks for coming in today. Awesome. Good to be here. Appreciate That was a mouthful. Yeah, it was. I mean, my mouth's a little dry and parched after that. So we've known each other, what, 2009 maybe? Eight? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. It's been maybe a, before that. I think even before that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm guessing maybe 2009. So, you know, I appreciate you coming in today. I know you've got a lot to 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 share, and I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. So, you know, where do we start here? I guess with you know, what did you what did you do as a child? Where did you grow up? <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. So weird, weird. Uh, I guess weird story for me to get started. Uh, I grew up as an army brat. So I was around, uh, you know, I've been around the military since since my existence started. Uh, I was born in Greece. Uh, my dad was in the army there, um, and you know, we moved around a lot whenever I was a kid. So for the most part, every two years we were moving somewhere. Uh, grew up in well, born in Greece, and we moved to Kansas, and then to Germany, and then my dad retired in '79. Uh, so I was about four or five years old when, when, uh, he retired and moved back to where my parents grew up, which was in, um, Henry County, Tennessee, which is like the North kind of Northwest corner of, uh, of Tennessee is like really close to Kentucky border. How old were you when you, when that happened? I was about five. So you moved at least three or four times prior to being five. Yeah. Yeah. Three times. Yeah. And, uh, which was good, you know. I had a I had a pretty pretty crazy uh, 
childhood. Like I, I remember finding uh, cassette tapes years later when I was I was like you know in my teens of of us sending cassette tapes back and forth to our grandparents and you know my my dad spoke fluent German and he spoke pretty good Greek and I mean he was just a, a you know had one of those weird knacks for learning new languages and you know I'm listening to this cassette tape and my dad's like hey come in here and talk to your granddad and I'm sitting there talking about like what we were doing and and he's like, hey, now say it in German. And I'm just, like, spitting out all this stuff in German. I'm like, holy <laughs> shit. And I'm like, I didn't know. I had, I had no idea that I used to speak German, you know. And my dad was like, yeah, you were pretty good at it, too. I was like, dang. You know? Pretty insightful to use the cassettes to communicate. Like, yeah. Way before anybody was thinking using alt media, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, we'd send these long, long tapes and, and then... Like, hey, the mail's here. We got another cassette tape. <laughs> listen to your, we can sit and listen to your granddad smoke cigarettes. Nice. <laughs> He's like, nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, going back to where I grew up, I grew up in, in Henry County, Tennessee. Um, the the town itself, or the, you know, the town itself is called Paris, the, the main town. We grew up right outside in this little town called Purrier, Tennessee. Um but Paris is is the county seat, and there's I mean there's shit. There's probably twenty thousand people in the whole county. Wow, you know the whole county went to one high school. You know, um, it is definitely culture shock from you know moving moving from vast metropolises like you know Athens, Greece, or you know some of the places in Germany that we live where there's you know hundreds of thousands, or if not millions, of people to like you know you're living in a living in a little town with few thousand people sure so how brothers and sisters yeah two older brothers um my oldest brother sean he's six years older than me and then my other brother eric he's uh three years older than me so we all i mean we all grew up um playing playing sports my dad was a scout master he was little league coach you know everything anything you could think of my dad actually played football um in high school and one of the weird, weirdest things is uh, he actually um, he had to walk because the, there was only one school in town that that where they were actually you know letting people play football. And my dad was like, oh, I want to play football." And obviously, he was uh, a rather large man. Like later on, he was I think he was like six six, like close to like you know two hundred. 75 pounds like wow. you know is it like junior or senior in high school what years would this have been in the 50s so he was a big ass dude for the time yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like he graduated in 55 so you know 53 to 55 there like and he played he played football with another guy bill hudson who actually he was the principal of our high school but he he played professional football like he was on the chargers and he played in buffalo and some other places but like uh I, I remember Bill was was the the vice principal in charge of of uh, uh, discipline, and he was a big boy, dude. He's like walking around. He had the, these freaking bow bow legged, you know, his knees were all jacked up, so he was walking. And I remember getting getting my ass busted more than a few times by him with with a freaking wooden paddle. <laughs> discipline, like it should be doled yeah. out. Yeah, exactly. So, what sports did you play as a kid? Did you play with your brothers and sisters? Did you play you know, uh, competitively, what was, what was your track there? Um, I played, I started off, we played baseball. I played baseball as, at a really early age. And then, um, 
sixth sixth grade, I think, or maybe it was seventh grade. I know in middle school we were we we played football seventh, eighth, ninth grade um, at the at the local um, like all the all the uh, all the county schools were K through twelve, and then there was the city schools, which were um, like K through whatever K through six, and then there was all the city schools went to one middle school, which was Grove. Uh, middle school and so Grove Middle School had like probably the best football team at the time and they would they would actually like play other counties and stuff because they kind of knew what they were doing sure whereas the the county schools we were we were playing each other and I think there was about I don't know six six or eight county schools and and so we would all play each other you know every I don't even remember what night we would play Monday night or or some crap you know but it, it was it was comical like there was we would kick off but there were no like extra points. You know, we could only you could only do two point conversions. No field goals. Yeah, nobody because you know chances of getting a kicker was slim to none. You know, <laughs> off of that lot. And, you know, most people. I mean, we played both ways. You know, I was I, I started off. I was playing like offensive line and then defensive. I was play played linebacker and then I played defensive end a little bit. And I mean, I think even in. Um, I think eighth grade, I think they had me, like, playing cornerback at one point. I was like, Jesus, I'm, like, the slowest guy. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I started off playing playing baseball. I played baseball pretty much my entire life up until I joined the Navy. I played until I was about 16 or 17. And then, um, yeah, football was pretty much, you know, seventh, eighth, ninth grades. And, um, shit, what else did I play? <laughs> I think that's about it, really. Did Did you have a coach or uh, somebody that stuck out in your mind that kind of pushed you <clears throat> over the edge in terms of you know, discipline, focus, performance that you look back on? I mean, we've all got one or two that you look back on that had an impact. Do you have one of those? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, um, I had so many co- coaches in, in, in baseball, um, and not really any of them really stick out to me in terms of you know, really, um, really making an impact more, more so than like my dad. Cause my dad was always like right there is, is either a coach for, for baseball. And then certainly for football, he was always like, you know, he knew mostly better techniques because like, like I said, like when we were playing football, it was, it was basically, our football coach was like the PE teacher, at the, at, you know, and he was just <laughs> yeah. Like, this wasn't Texas football, no, right? no, yeah. So for the most part, um, most of the most of the coaching, um, and you know, the the number one fan was was my dad, essentially, like you know, pulling stuff together, and and uh, and only really after I joined the military <laughs> did I realize that holy shit, there's a lot of stuff that I do not know in terms of, I mean, even things as simple as like nutrition and, you know, building endurance and building all these crazy things. I was like, man, I, I might've actually been a halfway decent <laughs> baseball or football player. If I had actually known some of this stuff, you know, like building, building repetitions and, you know, getting stronger and, you know, all this, all this crazy stuff that people know nowadays it's, sure. it's, you know, which I'm sure they knew back then. They just, realistically who are you going to get a get any of this information from you know what year did you graduate from high school uh 92 yeah so this is all pre 
internet stuff, yeah, right? You're yeah. either reading it, somebody's exactly. telling you, you're watching it on TV, and there's yep. there's 10 channels or 20 channels on television. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, when I went to college, I had a bit of the same thing where you go and you learn about nutrition or ice, uh, all of these different things. Uh, stretching, right? <laughs> yeah. You're, you're in high school and you stretch because they force you to do it, not because you thought it was a good idea. Yeah. Um, I think at some point I actually was being denied water when we would go to football oh, practice. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 Because that was a thing to do at the time. Yeah. So how did you pivot from, you know, high school? I mean, when did you start thinking about going in the Navy and, and what were the things that played into that decision? <laughs> um, yeah, that's really interesting because – I, I, you know, I honestly never really thought I was, I would ever join the military, like going through high school. I was like, you know, my brother joined, uh, my brother joined the army. Uh, I don't remember what year, I think it was a year after graduate high school. So that would have been around like 87, 88. So I was probably freshman, sophomore in high school and, um, or no, not even high school. I was probably, yeah, this is before I even joined high school or, you know, I was probably middle school. Cause he's six years older than me, but, um, but yeah, he joined and I was, I, you know, I saw the, we went to like his boot camp graduation and stuff like that. And I was like, you know, head shaved and I was like, man, <laughs> I ain't doing any of that <laughs> shit, <laughs> you know? And this is all pre Gulf war one, right? So it yeah. was kind of like the Vietnam hangover and people's opinions were different. I mean, it was like Grenada and Panama and I think some other things mixed in there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there wasn't a whole, it was, you know, peacetime, Cold War stuff. But, um, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot going on. And, and for the most part, people were joining the military simply to uh, pay for college. Like, that's, I think, one of the main reasons my brother joined. Um, but, but yeah, I, I started thinking seriously about the military. I was probably, I remember taking the ASVAB as a junior in high school and just kind of like, just Baking Christmas trees on the Scantron, you know, <laughs> like, man, I ain't joining none of this. And then, you know, I think, I think right around my senior year, like, I think we came back from like Christmas break or something and people were like, like, Hey man, what school did you get into? And I'm like, Hmm, what are you talking about? <laughs> like all these people were like, you know, putting in all their stuff to like admissions to try and get in colleges and I had no clue, man. I was like, <laughs> just not like, a lot of planning. No, not at all. And, you know, to their credit, I think the guidance counselors, you know, it, at my school, I don't know that they were very proactive, you know, because for the most part, I don't, I don't even remember ever talking to one of them. <laughs> and it's not like they were, they were prompt, prompting us going, hey, you need to get your admission stuff in uh, this date and you need to, you know, go check out college this and college that and you know not not none of that shit going on i was they're not was, getting any commission if you're successful yeah, or not they're getting yeah. the pay the same whether they're sleeping in their office or working with you yeah exactly so it got to a point where i was just like man and you know looking at the options in in the town that i lived in you know like the major industry is like freaking walmart you know or i mean there's a couple of um there's a couple of plants there there's a there's like you know, they make like brake parts. And I mean, there's not a whole lot of. It's like hardcore manufacturing if it's even still there now. Right? Yeah. Yeah. There's not a whole lot there. But I mean, for the most part, you know, people work, you know, mom and pop stores or, you know, like 
Walmart or Lowe's or or they're like a teacher, you sure. know. So I mean, for the most part, there's not a whole lot of uh, stuff going on. Like for the most part, everybody's leaves the area to to kind of flourish. Sure. Um, and so, you know, I started kicking around, join the army because that's what my dad did. My dad retired. He did 22 years and was a explosive ordnance disposal guy. And so, you know, I'm talking to him and he, I'm like, Hey dad, I'm thinking about maybe joining the family business. And he, you know, of course he's like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you know, like we don't have a family business. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm thinking about joining the, joining the army and going to EOD school. And he was like, he was like, well, if you're going to, if you're going to do explosive ordnance disposal, he goes, you should join the Navy because the Navy owns, the Navy owns the school. So all the other branches go to the Navy school. And he goes, if you're in the Navy, you get, you get dive school out of it. So you become a diver as well as, you know, EOD. And so I started looking at the Navy um, and I was like, I was in Boy Scouts. I was an Eagle Scout and all kinds of other stuff. So I was always in the water. We were always swimming at the lake. And, you know, so I was, I was around water quite a bit growing up. So, you know, the whole swimming any of the water stuff wasn't like foreign to you at all to intimidate you. No, no, not at all. Well, the other thing too, I was, I I didn't know what I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, once I joined the Navy, I'm like, Holy shit. (laughs) Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I got to get comfortable in the water really quick. But, um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't too bad, but, but yeah. So I started looking at the Navy and the, and the other thing too, my mom was stoked to, um, to have me join the Navy because they were the only service that was actually given like college credit for, for, for anything you did at the time. So, um, that was a big draw for her to where it could actually like, you know, get some college out of it. What um, did your mom do? She, uh, she's a nurse. So she's, uh, whenever we first retired or when my dad first retired, she taught, uh, nursing at, at the local college. And then, it got to the point where they're like, hey, we want you to get your master's in nursing to get, like, tenure or whatever it was. And, I mean, teachers, even college teachers, they don't, they don't make shit for money. Sure. And so she went to Vanderbilt, got her master's in nursing, and then I think something else was coming up, and they're like, hey, now we want you to get a Ph.D. And she was just like, Pfft. You know, <laughs> screw that. So she went to she, after that. She left. She she started working for a um, couple different places, hospitals and stuff. And then she went to um, a uh, there's a there's a book printing plant like 45 minutes away, and she was like the plant nurse there. So she did that for a number of years. I don't know how many years she 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 worked there, but she wound up retiring from there. And now she's just living off of 401k, but. But yeah, she was very knowledgeable. She had she had a, a master's in nursing, I think a master's in counseling, and she's a pretty smart lady, um, especially coming from this goof goofball, you know. <laughs> so now you graduated from high school in ninety two. Mm-hmm. So the first Gulf War was over, which yep. kind of turned the tide on the America's general opinion about the military yeah. in general. Yeah. I mean. I remember being home when the war was starting. Actually, I'm a little older than you, and I was at uh, I was working for Xerox at the time. We were in Leesburg, mm-hmm. and uh, 
it was a sea of white in the cafeteria. It was all these Navy guys, and Saddam rolled into Kuwait, and the next day, man, everybody was gone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was an ass-kicking, you know, epic ass-kicking that the United States laid on them, and all mm -hmm. the money and technology, um, and it was a shot across the bow to, you know, the Russians as well, I think, yeah. at the time, that, wow, these guys yeah. can operate. It's not just... Um, uh, smoke and mirrors or money spent. So w did you know about the SEALs when you were going to go in, or did you think about that after you had enlisted? Um, no. So when I went to talk to the recruiter about EOD, um, I go in and I'm sitting there talking to him. He goes, well, he goes, one limitation of, of the EOD school, it's a very technical school. They're like, they don't let you go into the EOD field until you're an E5. So they're like, you could be an EOD assistant. You can kind of start the pipeline process, but they're like, you're kind of not really in limbo, but nothing's really guaranteed until you, until you're like going to EOD school. And so that, the real EOD guys telling you like, Hey, cut that wire and stands behind you. <laughs> yeah, Is that the yeah, exactly. Yeah. Get up there, <laughs> hit it with a hammer. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then the recruiter's like, well, we have this other thing called seals. And he's like, instead of disarming bombs, you just swim up to a ship and just leave leave your thing there and then swim away. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, shit, that sounds pretty cool. So I started doing more research into that, which consisted of watching uh, Charlie Sheen in Navy SEALs. <laughs> I was like, hell yeah, those guys look badass. I'm going to do that. So I uh, actually I, I kind of hamstrung one of my buddies uh, who was – contemplating joining the military as well. He was like, yeah, man, I want to join the Marines. I'm like, nah, those guys are idiots. I'm like, you don't want to do that. <laughs> Which I had a bunch of really good friends that joined the Marines. I'm not, I'm not, I really don't think they're idiots, but um, I'm like, no, man, you should, I, I'm like, you should, you should join the SEAL teams. And I started showing movies and stuff. And he was like, oh yeah, let's do that. So we joined together. And when I joined, um, so you go down to, you go down to what's called MEPS, um, and that stands for something, Military Enlistment Processing Station or something like that, um, which was in Memphis at the time. And a funny story about that, we had to catch a bus. So we got on a bus and we rode down there. It was like, it's only like a two-hour drive. but It's like a Greyhound bus or yeah. is it like a Navy bus? No, like a Greyhound. So literally it's a two-hour drive and I think it took us like five hours to get there because, of course, they stop in every podunk town. And, you know, sure enough, we get there, and they're like, you guys are going to be staying at this Holiday Inn. So we get there, and, you know, it's got a little restaurant attached to it. And, and of course, the you know, the because it's the military, they give you, like, a handful of, like, coupons. These stupid coupons are like, okay, this is good for one free dinner at the whatever, you know, attached to the Holiday Inn. So we're sitting there eating. And sure enough, this should have been the first thing that keyed me to, like, not do this. But we're sitting there eating, and the bus driver who just drove us down there, the dude literally keels over in his chair, hits the ground, and, like, has a friggin' heart attack. <laughs> I was like, holy smoke. So some, somebody was down there doing, like, chest compressions on him, and, like, they, you know, paramedics come. They pull him out of there. I don't know if the dude died. On or, the bus? No, this was in the in restaurant. The restaurant. Yeah, but I was thinking, I'm like, man, if that would have happened while he was driving the bus, dude, we've been a mess. <laughs> we've been all piled up. Wow. Yeah. Welcome so, to the Navy. Yeah. So then, of course, the next day, you know, you get up balls early in the morning. You catch a shuttle. They take you to MEPS. 
you get there and you, you know, you get your physical, you do all this stuff. You get, you know, guys like tells you to get down and duck walk. He's making sure that you have full range of movement and, you know, then playing with your testicles, telling you to cough and all that good stuff. Nice. Yeah. Um, and then once you're fit, you know, once you're found to be, you know, okay, this guy's fit for full duty, then they go into what's called classification. And then there's, so these people are going, hey, these are the jobs that you qualify for based on what your ASVAB was. And, and so I asked for the SEAL program. And there, at the time, there was a program called the Dive Fairer program. And it was, you could either be a diver like the EOD assistant pipeline or, or seal. And so I'm like, well, I want to do that. And he goes, okay. And you still had to choose a, like, like after boot camp, you still have to choose a job because like, if you don't make it, you still have something to fall back on, but you have to choose that up front. No, no, no. But there's a few source ratings that you could choose. I, I actually chose mine. I think I was in boot camp when I chose mine, but, um, but my buddy, and of course, they would only give us one of, and had I known at the time about talking to recruiters, because at the time, I mean, a recruiter tell you something, you were like, oh, well, must be true. <laughs> now Surprise. it's like, man, there's so many people I talk to. I'm like, dude, don't believe a single thing a recruiter tells you, because, dude, <laughs> he's just trying to get your ass in the military. He don't give a shit. I mean, they're not all like that, but a, a large majority of them are trying to make a quota, and they're just like, yep. You want to fly a plane? Sign here, buddy. Yeah. I'll get you. I'll, you'll be a pilot in three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that a lot, right? You know, and I'm not a military guy, but uh, certainly my family and surrounded by them all the time, that's the thing is like these guys are going to do whatever they can do to cajole you into oh, that position. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. So once, you, once, you, once you're going through that and you make the decision – going in before you're ever in the Navy, right? Mm -hmm. Now you press hard six copies. Now what's the path then from there to becoming a SEAL? Um, yeah, so, so yeah, they gave me, they gave me the, the dive fair program. I think I had like one less speeding ticket than like my buddy. They're like, we can only give it to one of you. And so I wound up with it. He wound up basically going in on some other program and like he sat on a freaking destroyer for like four years and was like fun. Pfft. Great. Scraping paint. Yeah. And so, um, for me, you know, you go into the delayed entry program and they set your, they set your, your boot camp date. I think I joined in October and I think my date wasn't until April. And, um, so, you know, right off the bat, I was like, okay, I got to start, I got to start getting in shape. I got to, you know, got to start doing all these things if I'm going to be a SEAL. And and the other thing, too, that the shit that fueled it was, you know, people were like, what? You're going to go be a Navy? Psh, you're not going to do that. Like, and I'm like, so it kind of fueled fueled my fire inside. Because I'm right? like, well, yeah. you know. So, I mean, there was a gravel road by my house, and literally every day, I mean, when I first started working out, I could barely run a mile. Like, you know, and I told myself, I was like, hey, I'm – not going to stop, you know, even if it's a slow, you know, a slow jog. A trundle. I'm never going to, I'm not going to just quit and stop and walk. I'm like, okay. I'm like, I got to start, I got to start with a mindset now that, you know, anything that I do is going to be, you know, 100% and I'm not going to, 
not going to quit. So what gave you that mentality? Was it the scout stuff? Was it your dad? Was it playing sports or was it something else? I think it was a, a lot of, I think it was all of that. Um, I think one thing that kind of, that kind of drove home, um, the, the, the don't quit mentality or, um, like almost the regret because like I, I quit playing football my freshman year and had a grudge for the longest time because I felt like other, other dudes were, were getting played. Like that's a whole nother story, but like I felt I was better than some of the dudes that were getting played and they were getting favoritism because the coach had came from another school sure. that these kids were coming from. And, you know, and even there was, there was a couple of coaches that knew my dad and stuff and they were like, dude, they're like, you know, tell him, tell, tell your son to come back. Like he's got potential. He's Stick a good dude, you know? And, and it got, I got to the point where I was like, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to ride the pine if I'm just, I'm, I'm putting out as much as these other dudes and, you know, and I was playing, I was think I was playing defensive end at the time. And I was, I thought I was doing good. And like one of those things that it's like you quit and then, you know, you instantly regret it. And I, I feel like once I, once I started down that road, training to be a seal and and even in the pipeline like whenever I was in buds you know I constantly had to remind myself it was like not that I I felt like I was going to quit but I think you if you you visualize yourself making it through and the and the thing for us was like when you make it through hell week like you're uh the first well at the time hell week was sixth week I think now it's like week three or something um you wore a white T-shirt, and that that kind of identified you as somebody who hasn't been through Hell Week yet. And so, what I constantly visualized was them giving me my brown shirt, yeah. like at the end of Hell Week, and that kind of is like your, kind of like a big rite of passion in rite of pat, pat bleh, rite of passage, in, passion, rite of passion. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of school is this? <laughs> rite of passage to where, you know. Once you make it through Hell Week, that's that's also kind of signifies to the instructor staff that, that you're serious about being there and that you want to be trained, you want to be a SEAL. You know, it it's kind of it's kind of bad when dudes like go that that long, like six weeks of training, and then and you know the dudes are serious because they've been sticking out that long, but sure. then it gets to a point where that one thing like makes them break, and I mean you literally see dudes i mean you're crushing their soul you're crushing their will to continue you know and you see these guys go ring the bell and it's like man and then you see some of the like absolute you know stud standouts so dudes that are like you know pt studs that are like front of the front of the line that are you know fast runners great swimmers all this stuff and you know some of these some of those cats are like the first dudes ringing out and you're just like holy smokes like why did that guy quit like it seemed like he was you know, just cruising, you know. It, did Is there a common thread at all of people that make it through? No, they haven't. It's weird because they do studies all the time with that stuff, and they've tried to they've tried to figure out what, you know, what it is that's that distinguishes people who make it and don't make it, and I don't know that they've ever came up with that. And I think they, they've, they've came up with a couple of things where, um, like, certain communities like water polo wrestling um stuff like that where some of those guys excel or maybe a larger percentage of 
like somebody who's coming from a wrestling background will make it through versus like you know baseball or sure. or football or whatever but you know they haven't they haven't really pinned it down I, and ultimately i think it you, you're never going to be able to because i each person is is so you know vastly different you're you it's really and and even week to week day to day there's there's you know there's guys that that just have an off week and you would have never thought the guy was going to quit and he's like nah sorry yeah not my day or you know my grandfather just died and it's weighing heavy on me and you know i got to i got to bow out you sure. know and stuff like that but it's it's just weird cuz um it truly is. I mean, people ask me, they're like, oh, man, like, was it hard? I'm like, yeah, it was hard, but at the same time, it was worth it because, like, the 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 time that I had in the SEAL teams was, I mean, phenomenal. Like, I had, I, I can't even explain how, and it sounds crazy, like, oh, that was so much fun. But, I mean, it was, it was not necessarily fun, but it was rewarding in both in terms of, you know, I'm serving my country. I'm doing something I like, but at the same time, it's more rewarding because because of that training that I went through and the guys that are right there to my left and right of me. You know, those guys are are who you fight for. You sure. know, when you're when you're downrange or whatever. So that camaraderie. I, I th- having not been through it right, and, and at. At, at much lower levels, right? Playing football or in sports, I think it gives the the civilian uh, a, a micro taste of what it's like to build the type of camaraderie when you you went through what you did in the beginning, and that's before you're even getting into some of the more specialized training, and for sure in combat and yeah. the loss and things like that. When when you were going through buds for you, it might be different for somebody else. I've talked to people that say. It was a swim. It was a pull-ups. It was X. It was Y. It was Z. For you, what was the thing that pressed you to the limit, or where did you get closest to to where you were? You felt weak, or where you felt closest to potentially uh, tapping out? Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Like I look back on it now, and I can't ever remember. I I think there's only really one time during Hell Week when I when I was like, man. Am I gonna quit? And that was when one of my buddies, I thought he had quit, and it was a guy that I'd went through like boot camp and a school and in um, the like before we went to Buds, we were at a we were at a dive command, like basically getting ready because Buds was like all backed up, so we were there for six months essentially just like working out and stuff. And so I'd known this guy the whole time I'd been in the Navy, and uh, real skinny dude, just good good guy, but I mean guy didn't have an ounce of fat on him and we're you know it's hell week you're literally freezing your ass off like guys are getting hypothermia like you're like dudes are having to be rewarmed what's the water temp in in coronado at as you're going through this um they said when we were going through hell week i know we did this this one event called steel pier which was um it was sunday night when we first broke out and we lost the majority of our guys or i think we lost 20 guys out of how many did you start with? We start with a uh, we start with sixty nine. Started Hell Week, so you lost. Yeah, we lost 20. twenty guys just on Steel Pier, and so Steel Pier basically is, um, you know, you're in your uniform. They make you jump in the water, and you take your take your your uniform off, and you basically like 
it's like survival school. You're like making flotation out of your pants. And, and so, I mean, realistically, they're just giving you something to do between freezing your ass off. Cause sure. as soon as you're done, you get back on the pier and you lay on this, this friggin' steel pier and they're sitting, sitting there spraying you off with water. So you're just like sitting there jackhammering on the steel plate, you know? And I remember, um, at one point, they bring our class officer, our class OIC, um, up there. His name was Mr. Krug, and uh, it was Instructor Kelm. He was like, Mr. Krug, 19 people have quit. If we get one more quitter, no one else will have to get in the water. And Mr. Krug's like, I quit. <laughs> He's like, oh, shit. He's like, oh, I didn't think that would happen. He's like, all right, nobody else has to get in the water. So he's just literally, we just sat there on the pier and got sprayed off with water. We're still freezing our asses off. We're like, dude, it's almost, it's almost warmer getting in the ocean and getting that, than that, staying there in the air and getting, yeah. So they said it was, they said the water was like in, I don't know, it was like probably f- mid fifties. Ooh, that's yeah. tough. So it was in December, and this is on and off for a whole week, right? Yeah, yeah. They start, you start Sunday night, and it it secures uh, like Friday afternoon. And how much sleep did you get total during that period of time? Like four hours. The whole week? Yeah. And, <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, and obviously, uh, there's a great video on YouTube. You, I don't know if you've seen it ever or not, but it's Jimmy Jimmy Johnson is talking mm-hmm. to kids at the University of Miami. And yeah. he's saying that cowards, or, cowards are made by fatigue. Yeah. And when you're tired, I mean, and I'm guessing that that's part of this, right, is the yeah. vetting process. How are you going to react to yeah. this type of uh, resistance and this type level of friction, physical, mental? Um, when when Did your buddy make it through, the yeah. skinny one? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he made it. Yeah, and it was did funny. you find that out during? or? <clears throat> yeah, I didn't know where he went because he was in my boat crew, and I didn't know where he went. And they were rewarming him in the van. Oh. So <laughs> rewarming him. What does that consist of? Dude, they literally just they have the heater on the van. They they put blankets on you and literally have a thermometer shoved up your ass. And then <laughs> they're like, "Hey, when that thing gets above ninety five, you're going back in there." So yep. Like your core temperature drops below ninety five, that's like a big deal. So, wow. I, you know, so they're like, "Hey, when your core temperature gets 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 north of whatever, and then you're going back in the water." And I I can only imagine, you know, the 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 amount of grit it took for him to, to get out of that warm van and for sure because he was he was one of those guys that constantly was having to be rewarmed and uh and i remember towards the end of hell week i remember he was in the, he was in the van we're running back from the demo pits and the instructors were like like he had like a pink box like a donut box <laughs> and they're like hey tell your classmates like ask him who wants donuts, and they're sitting there prompting him to say shit. And so he's they're driving by, and he's sitting in the van. He's like, "You guys want donuts?" They're like, "Sad, we're gonna drop you from training." He's like, "Who wants donuts? Who wants donuts?" That's funny. Yeah. Did you, uh, it, you know, through this whole process, I'm sure everybody's tried to cut a corner or cheat something or oh, yeah. plant something or run and eat something or get some sleep when you're not supposed to be like, so did you get, did you manage to figure some way to cheat a little or no, no? no. I mean, the craziest thing is, um, is, uh, they, so every day you do like a health and comfort inspection. So you're stri- you're stripping down to like your, your friggin' nothing essentially. And you're going through and they're, they're checking, 
everything on you because dudes will get like um because you're you're wet the whole time yeah, so dudes week. will get like a little cut or something and it, you'll get uh cellulitis and i mean you you uh, infections just get out of control like really quick so and i mean you're carrying around these friggin' inflatable boats on your head and your your head by the end of hell week your head is just rubbed raw and you got you're picking like these giant like scabs Ugh. off your head that's got just sand and shit embedded yep. in it and you're just i mean you literally look like most of the dudes coming out of there are like dude these cats are like straight off the set of friggin' Schindler's List or something, like <laughs> coming out of Auschwitz or something, because yep. dudes are. They're I mean, you're emaciated and you're just, you know, I I don't know how many how many pounds I lost. Probably you know twenty or so pounds, twenty five wow. pounds in a, in a week. Yeah. So what? How does it conclude? Like, and and how do you feel? Like, what's the what's the okay? You made it, and then what did you feel like? Um. Yeah. I mean, it was weird because so. We started with 69. We ended with 29. So we lost 40 dudes. And, and I mean, there were some good dudes in there, too. Because I, I remember, you know, a couple times where you, you look at guys in your class and you're like, how did that dude just quit? I mean, I remember, I think it was Monday night. Um, so Hell Week broke out. You have all day Sunday or, I mean, all, all evening Sunday, and then the sun comes up Monday. And that's, like, a big deal because you're freezing your ass off, and, like, the sun comes up. You're like, oh, God, finally some heat. And so, and then the, the big demoralizer is Monday night when the sun goes down again, and people go, oh, my God, here comes the pain. Here comes the, the cold, you know. And it's funny, too, because the instructors just feed on that. They're like, sure. okay, gents, like, Line up, and you line up, you lock arms, and you're looking towards the sun, and you're like, say goodbye to the sun. The sun's setting, like, forward march, and you walk right into the surf. You're like, take seats. You sit down in the surf zone, and that's the beginning of surf torture. You just sit there, and you just get pounded pounded by the surf, and you're just washing back and forth with your arms interlocked, and you're just – they sit there, and there's a formula for however cold the water is, and that's how long they leave you in there. And they're like, okay, you know. Wow. And so – um, but yeah, it was weird. I, I remember coming out of the, coming out of the, um, the chow hall and it was, I think we went into the chow hall. The sun was still out, came out and the sun had already set. And so we're like, Oh my God. Like, and you go to put on this, they're called K-Pock life jackets. You go to put on your K-Pock and it's friggin', you know, you got inside, you, you kind of dried a little bit and you're, you know, you're, you eat. So that heat you up a little bit sure. and you, it's really all you can eat too i mean you're just scarfing in the food because you're burning like tens of thousands of calories and um but yeah i remember we came out and you know the instructor like you got five minutes to get blah 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 you know like putting all your stuff on you got to stage your boat and you got to have a paddle in your hand and you, you know you got to do all this crap and and i just remember one of the dudes he's like puts his life jacket on he starts to like buckle it or whatever and he just like just takes it off. Wow. He's just like, I'm done. You know, that the, the, just that feeling of putting a wet life preserver on, you know, he's like, yeah, I'm not doing this again. I was yep. like, and that was one of the dudes that I'd, that I'd known through like a school and stuff. I'm like, dude, don't quit. Don't quit. I'm like, come on. It's short in the grand scheme of things, you yep. know? And yep. he was just like, nah, I'm done. 
yeah, I've heard from a lot of different people that when they get to that point, it's like you're just breaking it down to the next manageable step. It's not, hey, I'm going to make it to the next meal, but it's I'm going to make it for the next run or I'm taking one more step. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, there's other painful things in your existence, but, you know, n- normal people, yeah. and I'll quote it, normal people don't go through that sort of thing. Yeah. So you got pressed to the limit. So when you were done, was it like euphoric? With that component? No, I mean, that's just the start. Like, people think, the public generally thinks that, like, oh, you're a SEAL now, right? You're, yeah. You're, you're, here's your M60 and yeah. you know, run off with uh, and jump out of the helicopter. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. No, it's pretty funny because people are like, oh, man, you know, like, oh, oh, you guys graduated Hell Week. Oh, so you're SEALs now. I'm like, no, that was week six. We still have 20 more weeks of training to go or, like, 26 more weeks of training, whatever it was. So I think it was, like, you know, it's, like, six months of training. So I think it was, like, 26 weeks total for BUDS. But, but yeah, I, I definitely feel like I was on a high, you know, we, we, they passed out, you know, all our brown shirts and stuff. And when they secured our hell week, you know, they take pictures and stuff. And, and then it's like, okay, go to your room, which is right close by the grinder, which was, you know, we're right there in Coronado. Everything is kind of self-contained right there. And like every dude gets a, a freaking medium pizza and like a big ass Gatorade, <laughs> and they're like, "Go to your room." And then they they have people like your rooms, your doors had to stay open, and uh, so they had somebody on the floor that kind of would walk around because like when you go to fall asleep and you've been up that many hours, and you've constantly been you know moving and stuff. Like if you go to sleep, and like your arm like hangs off the bed or something like all that fluid is going to go to your arm and you're going to wake up with like a big fat hand or something. And so same thing too. So they, they had people that would, that would constantly monitor, you know, they walk into the rooms, make sure dudes are, you know, not sleeping on their back and, you know, make sure that dudes are like essentially still breathing, but you know, not, not having any kind of weird stuff. But, but yeah, I just remember I scarfed down like, you know, probably, a quarter or half of pizza and, and, and literally you don't, you don't defecate during this time either. Like, I mean, you quite, quite literally you have like, maybe you might shit like twice during that week because wow. your body's like trying to hold on, hold it all in to stay warm. Sure. And so I just remember I ate that pizza and like downed a bunch of that Gatorade and I, I passed out for like ten hours or something and and when I woke up I was like oh <laughs> like, <laughs> like, time to go yeah like go to the bathroom and you know getting out of bed it's like you're so stiff yeah right? it's like being in like fifty car wrecks you know your body's just wrecked and you're like trying to walk to the bathroom and then you like like finally like get my pants down like go to go to take a dump and it's like I'm like. I might have to have like some kind of surgical procedure to get this thing out of me. Like, I feel like that episode of South Park when the when the when the dude like craps the biggest turd, <laughs> he's just like sitting on top of it. It's like eight feet tall. But yeah, I mean, yeah. you're eating all that food, right? Even if you're burning the calories, like it's still yeah. got to go somewhere. Yeah, right? yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, you know that's not in the uh, you know the documentaries about going through. No, week, not at all. Well, it's weird, too, because then I'm, like, sitting there for so long, and then I, like, had to, like, literally call one of the guys to, like, come and help me get off the toilet because my legs had fallen asleep. Yeah. You could, <laughs> wow. could stand up. So what what year was that? That was 94. 
94? Yeah, 94. So well, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but 94 t- prior to, you know, 9-11, where were you? What were you doing? So graduated buds in 95, went to, went to, um, went to jump school and then checked in the SEAL Team 5 in, in like September of 95 and started, started work up. <clears throat> so in the SEAL Teams, you're basically assigned a platoon. Um, prior, I mean, prior to that, you go through what's called STT, which now they've consolidated all at the, at the center. To, now it's called SQT. And so the pipeline is a little, little more defined versus whenever I went through. Um, when I went through, like you would graduate buds, you would go to jump school at Fort Benning, and then each, each guy would report to whatever team he was assigned, and then that team would kind of run the training that, you know, they basically see, see fit. So for us, because Team 5 was like one of the cold weather teams, you know, we would – we would do a lot of cold weather training. We're going to Alaska during our workups and stuff like that. And then, you know, versus like SEAL Team 3, which was like the desert uh, team. So they were doing a lot more, you know, probably not going to Alaska a whole yeah. lot. You know, they're doing a lot more um, surveillance and recon stuff and doing a lot more stuff like that. So uh, I think it was Admiral Olson that kind of put this pipeline together or was a start of it. Um, to kind of consolidate everything to where SEALs are all learning the same thing through that basic, you know, all the way through to the end of SQT, essentially, because, you know, ultimately you want to be able to go to, to go down range and say we link up with some SEAL Team 3 guys. You want to be able to interoperate, and you, 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 want, to be, you want to be able to do a lot of the same stuff with those guys. Know what they're going to do, how you communicate, exactly. how you move, how you shoot. Yeah, yeah. So they kind of changed a bunch of that. So so when I first got to Team 5, um, checked in, you know, went through STT and then got in my first platoon, which was Charlie Platoon, deployed in like 97, 98. Um, and that was so weird. Like it, we were supposed to be one of the first platoons that was – kind of interoperating with uh with the carrier out of Yakuska, which was the independence it was like one it was like one of the last diesel like non-nuclear aircraft carriers and um so we get to japan to do this this training and literally the the independence is steaming out to sea and they're like, oh, that's weird. And so then our OIC is like, hey, what's going on? Like goes and finds out and they're like, oh, they're going to the Gulf. Like there, it was during this whole buildup in like 98 when uh, Saddam was like, you know, giving everybody basically being an asshole. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and then, so there's this huge buildup of military in Kuwait in, in, during that time. And so my OIC and his infinite wisdom was like, hey, you know, this is a good deal for us because if there's shit that clacks off in the, in the Middle East, we'll be over there and sure. we can get in on it. And so at one point, like, we flew back to Guam. It's like everybody was, like, we were so split up. I think at one point our platoon was split up in, like, eight different places. So, like, the OIC and the chief, like, flew to Singapore and, like, jumped on board the independence. 
some of us were like, because we had to fly with all of our gear. So we were like catching flights out of like Japan. And I mean, we wound up, we were in like Yokota, Japan. Then we flew from there all the way to Diego Garcia, which is in the Indian Ocean, is where yeah. a bunch of like the bombers yeah, stage B-52, out of. B 52, B 2. Yeah. And so, um, and then a, a bunch of other dudes were, you know, various other places. So then we rode, we rode a ship up into the Indian ocean and linked up with, uh, with the carrier. And we're literally, they're like, Hey, you guys are going to fly into, you guys are going to fly into Doha, Kuwait. You're going to, um, you're going to plan on being there for 10 days. So we had like one para bag and we were there for like 10 weeks. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Smelling good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, we had all our shave stuff and everything, but it worked out good for us because we actually wound up doing some real world stuff in the, in the Gulf and doing some shipboardings and stuff like that. So it yeah. worked out. All right. I mean, there, everybody jumps to the, to the, there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Cause you spent a lot of time there, but you know, I, I remember that period of time and I was had just moved to San Diego and, you know, Saddam had shot at American jets 3,600 times. He had tried to kill George Bush the first yeah. in Kuwait. Um, you know, he hadn't, he wasn't letting the weapons inspectors in disabling cameras, you know, the food for oil program was being, you know, gamed so that he could rearm, mm-hmm. you know, I think the French were selling him stuff, you know, uh, some shady deals. There was a lot of stuff going on there. Uh, and it wasn't like we just ignored it. I mean, yeah. we didn't do anything, but you were monitoring, and there was probably a lot of stuff going on in the background. So uh, it wasn't like everybody was just sitting around. Yeah. But now, you know, 9-11. So where were you, and how did you find out? So when 9-11 went down, uh, I was in my, I think it was my fourth platoon. Um, we were in Mississippi where there's a shooting school that we go to down there. So we were in the middle of a workup getting ready to, we weren't supposed to deploy until uh, June of 2002. And uh, so when 9-11 went down, we were literally getting ready. We were eating breakfast, getting ready to go into the uh, shoot house um, in Mississippi. at uh, It's called Mid-South Institute of, Mid-South Institute of Self-Defense Shooting, or MISS, which is, kind of funny Mississippi (laughs) um so yeah the acronym for a shooting school is miss (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so we were getting ready to go in there and and I I think I remember like they have these big range houses so like everybody is basically staying in these houses like the each platoon each platoon has one house and um so I remember walking in there and like the news is on and like Everybody's like, "What's going on?" And I just remember doing like, yeah, "Some jackass flew a flew a plane into the World Trade Center." And I'm thinking, you know, a Cessna or some right. shit, you know. And that's what the initial reports were, which are always wrong. Yeah, right? yeah. And so we're sitting there, we're watching the, the first first tower on fire, you know. And then you see the second plane hit, and you're like, "Holy shit!" Yeah, like big fireball, and you're like, and everybody's like, "Dude, was that?" A replay, and we're like, no, because the first tower was on fire. That's not a replay. That was like, yeah. And then that's when everybody realized, like, oh shit, the jig is up. Yeah. Like, and so literally, we finished that block of training. That was in obviously September, 
and we did a couple more things and we wound up deploying in November and um, we didn't really do a whole lot. We went to, I mean, we did some cool stuff. We went to, we went to Guam and then from there we were farmed out on different J sets and stuff. Um, but we wound up in, uh, in Singapore um, doing some cool stuff down there. Um, and then that was pretty much it. By then we, we redeployed and that was the beginning of the whole NS20, NSW21 restructuring thing where SEAL Team 1, like they basically restructured the SEAL teams to where we would all deploy as a team instead of, it used to be platoons would kind of just piecemeal. Like you'd have, you know, maybe two platoons from Team 5 would go to Guam and then there'd be like a Team 1 platoon there. And then there'd be like another Team 1 platoon up in like Okinawa or something. And then you'd have like, you know, Team 3 was in Bahrain. And, you know, so it was just like a couple platoons. And so then they changed it to where they wanted the command structure to be able to deploy like in force. Sure. And so like the CO of the team would, would still – he would be downrange with us. And he basically – little more top cover for us and he's he's the one jockeying to get us get us work and stuff instead of you know somebody we don't know trying sure. to get us stuff so that was the beginning of that whole nsw 21 it happened and that couldn't have happened at a better time it was literally right after 9 11 was when that kind of went down so team one relieved us um in like i don't know probably april april or may of uh 2002 so you're involved in other things between 9-11 and when you ended up in Afghanistan or Iraq. Yeah. Right? But they were they were smaller things probably that didn't appear on the news. Um, yeah. Yeah, There's it's weird stuff, too, because there's, like, even though we weren't, like, in Iraq or Afghanistan, like, right after 9-11, like, we stood up this debt in, uh, in the Philippines, and, like, a lot of people were like, what are you doing in the Philippines? And they're like, well, there's... There's this. There was this group called ASG Abu Sayyaf Group, who they were like essentially kidnapping, you know, uh, Christian uh, missionaries and like beheading them and holding them for ransom and shit like that. And so when we stood up this debt down there, um, we essentially started training our our Philippine counterpart down there. And and you know, you have a large contingent of uh, Muslim people who um, coming from the the uh, Indonesian islands into the Philippines and there's like like just crazy shit going on down there that like beheadings and you know stuff like that so that a lot of what we were doing down there was trying to combat a lot of that stuff and you never even hear about any of that shit on the news that's what I was going to ask is is it is it challenging you know so we'll rewind the clock for everyone that's not a historian and I certainly am not but so for between when you got in and 9-11 you had Right around, maybe right before you got in, I guess, the Black Hawk Down situation, right? And, mm-hmm. and Osama bin Laden had something to do with that. Yep. There was a, the U.S. coal, the USS Cole yep. got blown up, and I think killed 17 or 18 sailors. There was yep. the African embassies. Then there was Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia. Yep. Um, and then, you know, they tried to blow up the World Trade Center, you know, in 93, I think, the first time. And, you know, when you're watching the news, you've got a different perspective than everybody else because, A— you potentially are in the news. You're the one involved in this stuff. But when you see those events that everyone sees, but then you're seeing all the stuff that's going on that nobody else knew about that you were just referring mm-hmm. to, and that's just a tiny piece of it. Yeah, It's got to be frustrating to be around regular people when you're home 
that have no concept. You can't say <laughs> what's going on, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And it's almost like you're living in a little bit different world. And then all of a sudden you see the nine eleven thing and it's like, holy shit. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of those things too. Um, I think that's one of the disadvantages to um, a lot of Americans who don't travel abroad or who, you know, they don't really, they don't really realize the things that bad things happen overseas, you know, and until, you know, a thing like nine 11 hits sure. here and, you know, then all hell breaks loose and it's like, Oh my God, we got to do something about it. And you're like, well, you know, there were all these, all these signs leading up to nine 11 and like, we really didn't do shit about it. Yeah. You know, there's all these things, and even like that whole buildup in the middle East in the, in the nineties. I mean, we gave Saddam chance after chance after chance and, you know, not to, not to get political, but it, you know, it was Clinton was, was the guy that was there. And, and it seemed like the only time he would bomb the shit out of anybody was when it was, Politically Good for him. expedient. Yeah, right? like, he was like, oh, shit, Monica Lewinsky, oh, shit, we better bomb Sudan, you right. know? So right. um, that was some of the weirdest stuff going on. But, it, you know, between then, like with Bush, when Bush came in um, and, you know, 9-11 happened what, within, like, his first year, I think, of his presidency. It, it, from what I understand, it was supposed to happen if I'm not – if I'm – Correct in the 9/11 report in February. Well, it was like right after he got in, and for whatever reason, it got delayed. But I, I think it was you know whatever eight nine months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy, you know, that 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 went down. But um, and all you know, it's 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 like one extreme to the other. Like you have Clinton who really didn't want to do anything, and then Bush almost took it too far, right? By going shit, let's invade Iraq too. It's right. like Jesus. Can we get one war over first sure. before we invade sure. this other country, you know? I think that the, the 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 fear level in the country was so high after 9-11 of how the hell did this happen here? Yeah. And we saw we had all of these signals prior that we were just talking about. But then he also knew that Saddam, you know, was playing games with the, uh, you know, food for oil program. Yeah. Yep. He was shooting at American planes. He was playing the U.N. game. And I don't think Bush wanted it on his watch. Now, granted, Saddam didn't have anything specifically to do with Osama. I mean, that was a separate deal. Yeah. But um, you know, you, you were you spent the majority of your formal deployments in Iraq. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, take me through. I, I don't remember when the war started in two thousand and three, but you know, where were you uh, when that whole thing started? So we were we were ramping up for. Um um, I mean, we pretty much knew Iraq was going to go down, so we were we were um, basically jockeying for who's gonna who's gonna be going over there, which platoons were going over there, and and so, uh, yeah, Team Three was deployed at the time, and they were coming up on their on our rotation, so we were about to relieve them, and. They basically they that's when the war started and they 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 had a whole bunch of ops that were earmarked like you know we had gas and oil platforms that had to be protected and they had the whole um, the Alpha Peninsula which is in the southern part of Iraq like by the like Umkasser and all that they're just crazy with oil refineries and stuff like that so that was one of the major things that we went in not us but Team Three went in and kind of took down protected. Um, 
you know, destroyed all of Saddam's guys. And then we rolled in in April of 2003, and then we did a turnover with SEAL Team 3. And then our first op, we actually went up to a dam, which is up close to the – it was about 20 clicks from the Iranian border. It was called the Mukarayan uh, Hydroelectric Dam. And we went up basically and uh, took it over and held it for five days because uh, there was fear that – um, if it fell in the hands of, of, you know, loyalists to Saddam, that they would blow it up and then they would, it would flood the entire Baghdad Valley. Sure. So, um, we went up there, we held that and that's, we had those, um, those desert patrol vehicles and those things were like, we spent. It's like a buggy type thing. Yeah. It's yep. like eight nineteen eighties technology. Like they're, it's like basically a VW bug, you You're know, not driving on, around on like a Polaris a, oh man, no, this thing, those things were. Those things were such garbage, and we would spend about, for about every hour driving those things, we'd spend about four hours wrenching on them, you know. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it was it was a good learning process because anytime the thing broke down, we knew we could fix it. But it was just it's like man, you know, they had like air cooled VW motors, and you know, like the six seater that we had. Um, so we we took down that that dam. We had six six Pavlo helicopters and uh so two of the helicopters had uh one six seater was in one and then the three seater was in the other and those things you know they they got 50 cal mount on them and and then in the front seat there's usually a mark 19 or a or a, a belt fed machine gun uh m60 or similar um so we we basically drove those things uh into battle and five days later, we had to push those things onto the helicopter, like get them out of there. Cause like <laughs> nice technology. Yeah. The motor was destroyed in the six seater. Um, and then the three seater didn't have, uh, it blew the reverse out of the gear. So <laughs> it was like, okay. And then, so we're, we're leaving, we're leaving the, uh, the, the hydroelectric dam and we're flying into Baghdad into biop into Baghdad airport. And we're, you know, we're sitting in these, in the seats of these dune buggies. We're sitting there bebopping around, listening to music. And uh, our comm guy, you know, patched, patched an iPod into the, into our comm system. So we're sitting there listening to music. And all of a sudden the freaking helo starts banking and weaving and dropping chaff. And we're like, holy shit. And then like, we finally land and we're like, what was that all about? And like, yeah, we almost got lit up by like a Patriot missile battery. Like thought, we, thought we were like a scud or some shit. Nice. Like I was got blown out of the sky. I was like, man, that would have been great. I can't imagine you probably could write 20 books with uh, <laughs> all the stories like that. So when time in Iraq, like, you know, you read the history books, and it's, you know, Fallujah and Ramadi and Mosul. And where was the hottest activity or the hotbed when you were there? Talk a little bit about about that. What did you see? What did you experience? Um, when we first got there, so we, we got to – we stayed at the Baghdad airport. So my first deployment was uh, about April to October of 03, and that was probably the – better or probably the best deployment we had in terms of being able to just operate, you know, unilaterally with impunity. Like we, you know, we would put in, put in an op request and in, you know, uh, or 
you know, we were tasked with something to do and, you know, we basically would go hit, hit targets without having to, you know, say mother may I quite sure. a bit. And, um, and so, you know, we, we were hitting basically prosecuting these targets, which were, you know, gray and blacklist, you know, that, that whole deck of cards was yep. basically like blacklist. And then there's gray lists. There's all these lists of, of bad dudes essentially, and so we would, we would get tasked with stuff and go hit those targets. And we were driving around in thin skin vehicles, no armor. And I mean, we didn't realize how lucky we were. Um, and realistically, not until later in 2003, did, did IEDs really start becoming effective. And that's when, you know, you had a, a lot of these, uh, um, whatever we call them, the, Dudes coming from like Syria and all these other places sure. that are rolling in. It's like uh, mercenary, right? Yeah. And and the Fayadine with like hitting the supply lines and going after softer targets, but wherever you were driving, you were a target, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But for the most part, we were I mean, we were operating at night, we were driving on night vision, we weren't running white lights or anything. So I mean, for the most part, we were doing everything that the big army or the big units weren't doing. Like the you know, the Marine Corps and the Army, they were you know, they would drive these convoys everywhere, white lights, and just because you, you know, we had basically rolled in there and you crushed the crushed the uh, the opposition, and so everybody felt a relative sense of security. But you know, you we were still like, man, there's still plenty of shitheads running around here that want to kill us. You know, yeah. I w- I would rather not drive down the road with white lights and you know music blaring or whatever else right. to you know. Or even operating in the daytime, you know, it's like, nah, let's let's take every advantage that we can. So, you know, we were hitting a lot of a lot of those targets, um, and basically just trying to turn get intel. So, like, we would hit, or we hit like Chemical Ali's house and a couple other places where we were rolling up like his his wife or his you know brother in law or whoever else, and then we're bringing them, trying to get those guys to um, to basically turn over turn. on their loved ones, you know, and be like, Hey, where are these guys? You know? And so that's basically the first deployment. That was pretty much all that we were doing. And we were going out, I mean, three, four, mostly not, not usually not more than about three ops a night just because of the time. But I mean, there were times when we would, it's a lot of activity. Yeah. You'd go out, you hit a target, you'd come right back and you're like celebrating and our, our task unit commanders like, Hey, got some more stuff, you know, and we were driving during that time. We were driving all over the place. Like we drove out to the Syrian border. Um, there was this one, another funny story. There was this one house they were, they were picking up on imagery and they're like, Hey, everybody, it was near, um, Al Qaim near the Syrian Iraqi border. And they're saying, Hey, there's, a uh, all these people, they're coming, they're fleeing or coming across the border in Syria. They're coming to this one house. We think there's like cache of weapons there, and they're, they're grabbing weapons or something there, and then they're, you know, then dispersing. they're then they're dispersing into Iraq. So we went, we were sitting there watching this house for for a little while, and and then finally we're like, yeah, let's, you know, we get uh, get an opportunity. They're like, okay, go hit the house. So we go, you know, kick the door in, and and the there's a little old lady, little old man, and they're in there, and we start start interrogating them and they're like no they're like 
They're like, where's the weapons at? And all this stuff. And they're like, what weapons? And they're like, why are, why do all these people keep coming here? And they're like, there's a well here. <laughs> they're like, it's the only water in the area. <laughs> so we're like, oh, great, great intel. Yeah. You know, U.S. military. Controlling it. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's part of it, right? You know, you have to exercise judgment in those because nobody is watching in the early stages, or not as many people are watching in the early stages. Yeah. And I would guess it's easy to be too aggressive. And you have to be aggressive to protect yourself and to get the job done. Yeah, for sure. But having that restraint, and, uh, you know, I'm not trying to tie any of this to sports directly, but you look at regular people running around, and um, I'll often get questions. People say, why why in the football business? Or why do you let your kid play football? Or why would you let your kid play hockey? And uh, it's a violent sport. And I'm like, well, it instills discipline. They don't understand it, that yeah. you know, for that kid going head-to-head with another kid and the whistle blows and you have to stop. Yeah. And then 30 seconds later, you got to be full ball at it again. And then the whistle stops. And you, there are rules to that. And that's at a junior level. That's a kid that's in seventh grade, in ninth grade, in twelfth grade, a college kid at D1, D2 that you never see on TV. Yeah. And – that emotional control is developed over time when you're not getting formal training. And when these kids don't have any exposure to that at all, I think you see a lot of this stuff that you have going on where, hey, man, somebody's in a combat simulator, which is basically a video game, for six, eight hours a day. Yeah, They're not put in a situation where they have to have com- emotional control. And then when life gets tough, they don't deal with it well. And then when you've got a lack of supervision, you got violent music, violent video games, you're watching movies like The Matrix where 600 people get killed, and they don't <laughs> see the collateral or the consequence of it, yeah. um, it, it, it becomes an issue. And then we, we, we soak in that, right? Like, you know, when, when, when you were doing all of these things for deployment after deployment, I mean, you lost – scores of friends I, yeah. I i i mean I, I know personally during this period of time how do you deal with that kind of like in this situation with this with this couple with the well i mean humor's involved in everything but when you walk out of there that's a lesson that yeah. man we we have a responsibility right like we're acting as god here in some cases and you got to control that spectrum of violence that you can bring to bear yeah but then on the other side of it, when you lose one of your guys, how do you, at that tempo of operation, get right back to it? How do you manage that emotion? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. I, and I, I definitely think there's there's that level of camaraderie to, um, that helps, like in the, in, the, in the buildup and like going back to what you're saying before, um, you know, the, the military is really – tried to, uh, you know, downplay, uh, like, groups hanging out, especially at bars and stuff like that. But for the most part, like, in the stuff that I saw is, like, during workups where where we're really hanging out and bonding together, not necessarily only at bars, but <laughs> but there's a level of camaraderie that's built during that year sure. that we're working up. And you see it, um, you know, like you're, like you're saying – you have guys that aren't exposed to that. And we, and we, I think we start to see more of that to where you have guys who, you know, they're, they're a little more loners. They're a little more, you know, like, ah, just, uh, I don't really want to hang out with you guys. I'm just going to go home and play video games. You know, it's like, 
you know, we, we, we called it mandatory fun to where we had, we had dudes who were like, Hey, I don't care if you drink or not, but you're going to come and you're going to hang out with the rest of the platoon. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and, and as a new guy, those guys are like, man, this really sucks because they're buying all the drinks and they're driving us home, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But it, Going back to your question, though, it, it, it does it does build that level of camaraderie to where, you know, you're, you know, one of those things I was saying before is like, you know, you're fighting for that guy to the left and right of you. Like when you go down range, yeah, you're, you're ultimately, um, you're ultimately um, fighting for your country. You know, you're trying to free the oppressed, especially, you know, some of those, some of those places in Iraq where, you know, you roll in there and, and, you know, kids and women, all these people are running up to you, like trying to hug you and go, Oh my God, thank you for, for finally crushing the regime of, you know, the Ba'athist party and, and Saddam and all this bullshit. And, you know, you do feel a sense of pride with all of that, but then you, for the most part, you're fighting though, for the guy to the left and right of you. It's, it's, and and when one of those dudes does go down, it's it's a it's a it's a hard pill to swallow. But then at the same time, you realize, you know, those guys went down, you know, a hero's death for one, and he went down doing something that he loved, you know. So that's it doesn't it doesn't make it any easier to to accept. But at the same time, you're like, man, those that dude is looking down on us, you know, laughing his ass off, sure. you know, because we're still here hearing the shit sweating our balls off in, you know, 120 degree heat with our, all of our kit on. And, you know, this dude is, is, you know, in a better place. So, but yeah, it's definitely, it doesn't get any easier for sure, but it's, it's a little, it's a little consolation that, uh, that guys did, did go down doing what they loved, you know, it's, uh, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but the, when, when you get home, between deployments and now you you're I mean I don't know if there's like a, a decompression day week month I can't imagine that's effective right yeah so when you're there you know you're hyper vigilant right every every bag that gets put down every bump on the road every pile of garbage every sound anything that's going on you're fully aware of constantly right and things like you know eating when you're outside of the wire or the safe area or as mm-hmm. safe as it can be, you're con- you're constantly turned on. Yeah. So when you come back here and somebody's like, Oh, Hey, you know, uh, you forgot to take the garbage out mm-hmm. or, you know, my, my back hurts. <laughs> like, how do you shift gears to that? Right. And, 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 you know, you, you just talked us through the, the selection process. Like you're taking people that are capable of controlling their and suppressing discomfort, physical pain, mental pain, emotions, a lack of sleep, and then you exercised it in real world, and now you got to come back and you're amongst, like, normal people like yeah. me, right? Yeah. Like, how do you do that and flip that off and, and still reconnect with everyone when you get back? Yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult. And I didn't realize, you know, between – I didn't really realize that I was this way until I think I saw that movie um, – uh, what was it? Uh, the American Sniper movie, the Chris Kyle story <clears throat> about like when he's, I think he was at like some kid, you know, he's back from a deployment. And he's, he's uh, 
like a, they're like a kid's birthday party or something. He's literally sitting in the living room, like watching the news and like watching shit go down in Iraq. And like, like I didn't really realize that like you never, like we would come back for like a year between our deployments, sometimes a year and a half. Um, but that whole year and a half, you're all you're doing is working up to go back over there. So you're, it's almost like your mind never left. So you're and you're itching to get back over there, and you're like, man. And at least for me, it felt like, you know, if I was to like go on shore duty or or something like that, I felt like I was letting people down. Yeah. You know, not not to mention I wanted to keep deploying and just you know keep getting after it. But, um, yeah. The funny thing is, I remember so many times when. You know, I would come back and and I'd go into my like my man cave and you know, the wife's got all the shutters open. I'm like closing everything down <laughs> and she's just like Why are you doing yeah, that? Yeah, she's right? like, What are you doing? There's no snipers here. I'm like, oh, you never know. What you know? was what was your biggest fear when you were I mean, was there if you had to pick one time that you can share that you were the most scared where you're there, like, holy shit, this is it. In it in went, Iraq? In Iraq, yep. Um no, I think I did. I definitely uh, in oh six oh seven. I had a a, a, a nice little firefight. Uh, we were on top of a building. We were uh, looking over a, a, an Overwatch. This was in uh, just north of Habania in a little little area called Abu Bali, and um, we set up. We were watching this road. We were waiting for people to to dig IEDs, and it and we basically sat there all day or. We got there early in the morning, and so the sun, you know, before the sun was up. And we see this group of, of dudes come in, and they're carrying, like, these huge, like, bags, like fruit bags. But you can tell there's stuff in them. Like, Too okay, heavy. Yeah. So the dudes, they, you know, they – and everybody knew we were there, too, because, like, we get to this house, and for the most part, you know, it's a whole community, and – their, you know, their little shed is behind their house where they cook and do everything. And so, like, if all of a sudden you're used to seeing somebody behind their house cooking every morning or at lunch or, you know, just out around their house, and all of a sudden you don't see them, it's like, it's like red flag. Something's going on. Yeah. And so, and, like, people would come to the door and knock, and then we'd have to be, like, tell them to go kick rocks, you know, like, sorry, you can't come out and play today, you know. <laughs> but... Yeah, so everybody knew where we were at, and then all of a sudden we're uh, we see these dudes roll in, and they go behind a house, and then all of a sudden, you know, we're sitting there. <laughs> I got my, I remember I had my helmet off. I'm sitting there. I like took my helmet off. And I set it behind me so I could like lean back on it, and I'm eating like an MRE or something. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you just hear, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> you just see like tracer fire going wow. over the building. And then, boom, like a rocket hits the building. Like, they shot a, like a friggin' RPG at the building. And they were like, oh, shit, <laughs> like, jumping down. I mean, we were, we were well below the ledge, but still, I'm, like, putting my helmet on. Like, I first threw it on. It's, like, on backwards. I'm like, <laughs> oh, shit, <laughs> and like, jumping around. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, so that was one of the times where, like, we got lit up. And then, you know, we returned fire, and the dude's – kept trying to shoot at us and, and we're trying to maneuver around our around our building and get to a point where they could either continue rocketing us or throw hand grenades up on the roof which was kind of like their 
their standard Stand. operating procedure. And so we wound up, I basically like, we actually had to call in a, a show of force. F-18 came in like rooftops. I mean, things like came in, it was like, you like, you can literally feel the heat off the freaking engine. And uh, yeah, we we're just like, dudes were all hiding in like this trench. So we we're all just like lighting them up with machine guns and, you know, doing call for fire. Like they're, dropping crazy shit on them and that was the end of it we're like okay well that was fun yeah let's go catch the helo now <laughs> how long did that last from from when the first shot uh i don't know off and on for probably four or five hours yeah Man. yeah did it and seem like it lasted longer did it seem like it lasted shorter well there would be pockets of like highly concentrated shit where everybody's like you know head down Shit's going off. We were getting rocked. You know, the building's shaking, and then it would be like a lull, and then we would jump up, return fire, you know, kill a couple of them, and then, like, a little, little more demoralized, and then you'd pick up another dude moving around here, you know. And then, obviously, the booger eaters in the area would, would figure out that there's something going on there. So you'd see more vehicles showing up and people jumping out of vehicles to – to kind of like join the fight, and sure, because they thought you, yeah, yeah, they could smell blood in the water. Yeah, they exactly. They could, yeah. Yeah, yeah, surprise, surprise. Yeah, so you're like, you know, shooting vehicles out from under people, and you know they're positioning themselves to like drive a you know vehicle borne IED into the building, and so you're like constantly like trying to figure out which vehicles are good, which vehicles aren't. You're like shooting, shooting uh, warning shots, and you know bullshit. It, it's kind of crazy, but. uh did you get, uh, I mean, we joke around with kids when they're playing football. Yeah. It'll be like the first, when they're when they're in seventh grade, eighth grade, they come to the sideline, they're like, I'm hurt. You know, somebody <laughs> stepped on my hand. You're like, it's football, man. It's yeah. like everybody's hurt. But in, in, at, the, at the level of kinetic interaction that you had, you had to get hurt almost all the time. When do you, t- when do you say, hey, I need some help versus not. Like, yeah. I mean, you got blown off a roof. You had a whole bunch of other things. Like, yeah. did you get, what was your, when were you hurt, hurt? Uh, Definitely getting blown off that roof. <laughs> I woke up and there were like three people like around me going, dude, you okay? And that was more, that wasn't, that wasn't peacetime per se. Like we were in Iraq, but we were training some dudes and we were on a, a roof and they, we, we breached, we breached a, a, a door and basically that, that shock came back and the, the building we were on basically crumbled. Like two guys jumped over to another building and I was like the only guy that was like, well, going down with the ship. <laughs> How far did you fall? Oh, I don't know. I fell I fell a good probably 30 feet, landed on my shoulder, and it like knocked me out for a little bit. And then when I – I don't know how long I was out for, but I, I came to and I was – man, my, my shoulder was pretty jacked up. And then, uh, but it was one of those things we, we went to the, they took us, or I went to the hospital, but it was, uh, the, because, uh, we're in Basra, uh, the whole area was basically run by the, by the Brits. They own the battle space. So we go to this, this British, um, mash unit or hospital and, uh, they do an x-ray and he's like, they're basically like, yep, nothing broken, mate. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, what the hell does that mean? Like, does that mean I'm, you know, I'm like, I can't even lift my arm like that. They basically, you just like, hey, we can give you some, we can give you some, uh, 
some ibuprofen or something. But other than that, they're like, there's nothing really wrong with you. You just got, you know, blown off a building. So I was like, no worry about labral tears yeah. or rotator yeah, cuff exactly. or any of that kind of stuff. That's yeah. crazy. So I'm like, all right, perfect. That, that, you know, I raced cars for a long time. And now when you look back at some of the stuff, you're like, man, it's crazy what those guys are doing. Like, I, I look at it now and you know, you're racing in the rain or this accident happened or that or this near miss or whatever. And at the time, you just kind of laughed, yeah. right? Yeah. And and you rolled out of there. So when you look back now with a, with a you know, I'm not going to call you a middle-aged man, but you're, <laughs> but you're close. Yeah. But when you look back, are you like, holy shit, I can't believe yeah. all those things happen? Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I remember like in the first – one of the first deployments – um, we were going to, to, uh, prosecute one of the targets and, uh, we're dry. We're literally driving through a firefight in thin skin vehicles. And we're seeing like tracer fire, like, like in front, like we're on the highway and things just like, we're just like, literally just like, you're driving through it. Brace for impact, you know? And I mean, it was going over our heads, but I mean, yeah, you're like, one stray One's, round, you know, you're like. One angle, the angle of that weapon gets turned yeah, a couple degrees. Yeah, right? but we're like, man, that was some hokey shit going yeah. on. But yeah, yeah. And that's one of those things, too, like when, you know, stuff comes out like, oh, man, all these dudes are going to Ukraine. Like, dude, you are, are you going to try and get in on one of those one of those deals? I'm like, not a chance in hell. <laughs> oh, you mean I'm guys like, getting paid? Yeah. Guys wanting to go yeah. over there to fight? Yeah. I'm like, dude, I every, every. Every one of my nine lives was used up, I think, in some of those deployments I did to Iraq. I'm yeah. like, man, I got out without, well, not not really without a scratch, but pretty much without a scratch. And, like, I think I used up all my all my good luck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now it's time for you to stay home and enjoy your family. And so what was that like? Now, once you were done, when you retired, you retired 2013. Mm-hmm. And now you're leaving and in, in – the thing I notice in, I mean, this is a tight topic to, to discuss, but the suicide rate for veterans is off yeah. the chart. And the suicide rate for guys in the special operations space is even farther off the chart. And the, the thing that's hard to swallow as a civilian is, man, these guys are the toughest. They have experienced some of the most difficult things. And when you have these discussions, and now this is somebody sharing with me as a civilian, not as, not as, uh, a team guy or a Delta guy. But when you talk to these guys, the transition seems harder than some of the things experienced. And now, and that's for me as third party. So you can tell me if I'm, I'm wrong, but yeah. when a guy's in, he's got a, he's got a mission. He's got almost limitless resources. He's fighting with guys that think and operate at the same pace and thought and trust level. Right. Yeah. And you're doing it for your guys next to you, your family, your country, God. Yeah. And then you come home, you got no mission. Yeah. Resources are, oh, what am I going to do now? Maybe there's some foundations, but how do I find the right one to help me out? I don't have a network here in the civilian world. I have a network in the the military. Yeah. And there might be people kissing my butt because I'm I'm an operator, but that's not going to help me in the long term. And my buddies are scattered about. And now I'm not doing this for anyone but me and maybe my family. That's where I, I as a as a third party person, where I see 
the challenges. Where do you see it having gone gone through this, and how did you bridge the gap from going from what you were doing to being a successful guy in the in the movie and TV business? Yeah. Like, how did you do it? Uh, I don't know. I think a lot of it's luck, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I I definitely it it is kind of weird going from you know military to to civilian world to where you know especially guys who you know a little higher up or or maybe you know all that they know is seal teams you know like i i i don't know it's really hard for me to to look at somebody um that's like minded like me that would that that life is that bad you know and obviously there's some there's some residual stuff from you know PTSD and sure. blast injuries and stuff like that 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 changes your your thought process but to me it's it's like man i can't i, I can't fathom guys you know freaking offing themselves sure. to um you know and lucky for me i i do have a a good support net of of not only team guys but of of you know friends who aren't in the military and i think maybe that's one one of the ways for me that i was able to bridge the gap um coming out of the military is the fact that you know i did have several friends who you know had nothing to do with the military so the fact that i could get away from some of that stuff you know even between deployments sure. you know going back to some of your other questions like how do you how do you manage that stuff and you know, if you're if you're one of those guys that that you know lives in base housing in Coronado, and like all you know is that area, sure. you know, the guys that's in the military, and then all of a sudden you're out of either out of the military, and you either move away from that to another state or something, and now you don't have any kind of support net, or you know you're no longer the Navy SEAL, you're no longer the you know, the command master chief of whatever, you're no longer the, you know, the, like an important guy, Sure. you know, and I think a lot of egos take a hit with that. And I think guys really try to find their purpose in, in, in the civilian world, because you're like, you know, shit, what am I going to do now? You know, I was a, I was a big deal for 20, 30 years in the, in the SEAL community. And now it's like, you know, now it's me and the old lady kids are grown yeah or whatever and now it's like you're trying to trying to figure out what your worth is and what what your what your uh, passion is in life and I, I think for me you know the fact that I was able to pour uh passion into a second career you know mostly thanks to uh Catherine and Harry Humphreys Harry Humphreys who who was an old Vietnam seal um who kind of took me under his wing and was like hey this is this is how you basically make it work in, in Hollywood and how you make things look real and how you make things, you know, look the part. Sure. Um, I think for me being able to, to kind of jump into a second career and, and, and have some more worth, I think that definitely helped me, you know, moving from military to civilian. Um, and you know, it's, it is kind of weird, you know, you know, like I said before, I can't, I can't imagine, the number of guys that have that have 
come out of the teams and like, shit, I don't have anything else to do and like wind up like you have nothing to live for, which I, I think there's always the next best thing. So for me, it's, it seems so foreign and I definitely feel like there's a, there's a level of, um, um, not mental illness, but I think that, you know, a lot of the studies that they've done that have, that have, uh, kind of proved correct in terms of blast injuries and, um, you know, dudes having to get on, uh, hormone replacement and stuff like that to, to kind of feel normal, you know, like I, I'm on testosterone because my IGF one levels and testosterone were like so friggin' low. And I, I can definitely, um, I can definitely feel like if I've been off of something for a long time and it, it's literally, it's draining you. I literally go sit on the couch and it's just like, I, it's not that I'm depressed, but you just, you, you don't want to do shit. You have no drive to do anything. You have no like initiative. You just like kind of sitting there. So I think, you know, the more that, you know, these veterans charities, which have been great, you know, you know, seal foundation, seal future foundation, Navy seals fund, all these foundations that are pouring money into getting guys healthy, you know, I think the more that we can do that and the, and the more also I think the VA is, has gotten a little bit better in the years that I've been out. Um, I, I got to the point where I had to stop going because it's like you go to the one in La Jolla here and it's like being on a set of like The Walking Dead. You're like, Jesus Christ. There's like dudes walking around like, you know, looks like a zombie. Like people are, I'm like, dude, these these are not, our 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 greatest generation or our, our 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 heroes these dudes that are like left to kind of just wither away and die you know yeah. so i think the va has has stepped up in the you know in the last several years um i think they can still continue to do more but especially with with um you know the ptsd and and uh getting guys hormone levels you know corrected yeah. and and you know the fact they do some of these CT scans of dudes, of dudes' brains, and they look like friggin' Swiss cheese. And, you know yeah. they've done amazing things with, uh, with, uh, uh, you know, hormone replacement, and and even uh, some of these other like oxygen, like hyperbaric, hyperbaric chamber sure. treatments and stuff like that. Uh, like they, they're really starting to do some good stuff. So a lot of it, right? I mean, there's different. There's the physical component and the mental component. And, and you can work on the mental component, but if the, if your physical being is not able to get you, allows you to get to the place, yeah, to, to get to the other side because your T level's too low, because your brain's jacked up, because it, you, know, you got breacher syndrome. And people think, oh, you know, concussions are all, and, and I mean, I'm in that business, yeah, right? Yeah. And uh, we fight with the NFL. I think the NFL test is. BS when it comes to these helmets, and that's for another top time. Yeah. And we'll have that conversation. But there's litigation mitigation. There's all there's there's the media. There's a lot of other stuff going going on. But until we can when we bring people home and you you do an analysis on them and then you know you're looking at them again in six months, looking at them again in six yeah. months, and what are the different curative things that can be done, right? Like you said, hyperbaric chamber hormone replacement, uh, you know, the person can have other damage. What, what are we going to do to get them to the place 
where they've got the ability to mentally heal and then giving them the opportunity. And then you look around today and post pandemic, you know, the United States productivity level pre pandemic was fantastic. Yeah. Right. It's some of the best in the world. People can complain about this or that. And we can fight within, but the United States is the economic engine like that nobody's ever seen. Nobody can compete with us. Yeah. After the pandemic, there's places that can't get employees. They're dishwashers in San Diego making $25 an hour because people won't pay them. Yeah. And uh, there are opportunities all over to be able to take this these disciplined, talented, loyal, focused, experienced people and redeploy them. One of the concepts that, that I, I had floated around with one of the, the, the team guys earlier was you have all these schools. And usually have two or three security guys mm -hmm. that have a radio. They got a coffee-stained shirt on, and they're walking around. Yep. And we got 25, 26, 27,000 retired special operations guys under the age of 55 years old. Let's take these guys, give them a background check. Let's teach them how to work school security. Yeah. You're never going to have somebody. It's not going to be like one of these police departments that sits outside for an hour yeah. and arrests the parents, these guys will never be able to walk in front of their friends again. They're going to be in the yeah. fight. They can see things before anybody else. They know how to fight. They're not going to be shocked by what's going on. And they're going to give all of our kids the best chance to survive in these situations. We need to get these guys and give them a, give them a purpose. And that goes back to, again, mission. And you're doing that with another guy or two. These big schools with three, 4,000 kids, kids it's a no-brainer yeah these smaller schools with a few hundred kids i'll take one team guy against an 18 year old with a semi-automatic rifle all day long and you know that's something we got to push for but as a society we have to do better of reacclimating people the physical the mental part but also the vocational part let's give let's give people a chance to succeed that there's two big poles like you've been doing this for the showbiz business and You've been in some great movies, by the way. <laughs> Navy SEALs versus zombies, not so much. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if the, people, scorcher. if the people that are listening to this, if you've not seen 13 Hours, uh, America's Secret Soldiers, yeah, Michael Bay has done a lot of, you know, crazy fun movies, Transformers. I think you were in a couple mm -hmm. of those, too. Yep. Bumblebee. Yep. But uh, I think one of the best, the best movie he did was, uh, was that movie. Yeah. And, you know, it tells a story about Benghazi and, um, you know, the, the loyalty and the, the plight that these former team guys were put in uh, and how they worked together with the agency guys to, to survive. But also, you know, the, what happens in the dark room sometimes is not always something that the United States is proud of. And in that case, uh, I think the movie tells the story better than I could ever tell it here. So you're in show business now. You've been in movies uh, you've been <laughs> successful. Your your IMDb resume is pretty extensive, and I mean, I didn't even scratch the surface when we got <laughs> on here. But you just graduated from from film school, and you know now you're part of the industry. I mean, you've got experience in this area. You can produce. You can direct. Like, where do you want to take this next? What's 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 next for you? Um, I think ultimately, I want to I want to direct my own stuff, and uh, um, obviously. A lot of that is, you know, getting off my butt and, and writing, writing enough content to where, you know, it either gets noticed by somebody that's willing to produce something or, um, or 
direct enough short films, which I've done, to where somebody takes notice and goes, hey, we want you to direct this. So, um, you know, just coming off of coming off of film school is, is cool, and it gives me, you know, some – it definitely got me out of my, my comfort zone. You know, it made me – you know, it made me do editing. It made me write. It made me do audio work. Um, and it, it is definitely, it was good for me in terms of, of making me do things that I wouldn't normally wouldn't do. Um, but just having that, you know, that piece of paper that says I'm, yeah. you know, have a, a, a degree in digital cinematography. No, no, no one in their right mind would go, Hey, we want to hire this guy to be the <laughs> director of photography on, right. you know, this, Two hundred million dollar film, just because I don't have the, you have the experience. Because no, you have for all sure. Experience, yeah, right? for sure, for sure. But you know, going uh, going forward, obviously, it helps me um, because I, you know, I I do know other things other than just being a military advisor now. So I can look at you know how something is filmed because I did go to school and go and I've you know filmed stuff myself. It helps because now I can talk to a, a DP or I can talk to a cameraman. I can talk to a director and not sound like a complete moron, you know, because I do understand, you know, things such as lighting and, you know, camera angles and lenses and, and stuff like that. So, you know, going forward, ultimately, I want to direct, like to direct, you know, a, a feature film of some type. And I have, I've been writing, I've been writing this one show for like, Two years, you know, I think I've got like 14 pages done, but (laughs) (laughs) no, but I, you know, I have uh, tons of concepts of stuff that. What's this one about? That was the one I was telling you about. It was, uh, it was almost, it's shit. It's almost like coming to fruition right now. It's, it's like, um, it's almost a mix between like Lord of the Flies and like Red Dawn. So like you have, uh, you know, people being put in like concentration camps and stuff because of like stuff that they're they're you know it's basically like the end of the usa essentially would be like the government basically rounding up people that don't yeah firing people because they didn't exactly yeah exactly rounding up people who you know aren't listening to what the government tells them to do and stuff like that so i think you should continue that but you better start (laughs) fucking writing fast i know uh, know. history may get ahead of your story i know crazy so you transition through this, so you've been you're, you're a dad, you're a husband, you've been a team guy, you've been in the film industry, uh, you grew up as a military brat. Um, you know, when you look around in at society, you know you've got ten lifetimes jammed into less than fifty years, and you look at kids or you look at how things operate now. I mean, where do you think we need the most help? Like. Wh- where are people falling short? I mean, the United States is still the greatest country in the face of the planet, but right now, where do you feel like wh- what frustrates you <laughs> after having given all this blood and sweat and, and lost er- everything, you know, and given so much time? Personally, I think it's just trying to get the person to get out of the fast lane. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing what they want to get eat. out of the damn passing lane, you assholes. <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty. No, um, it's so close to home for me. Yeah, that's that's definitely one of the ones, uh, you know, <laughs> but in, in terms of of the U- U.S. as a whole, I mean, I'm not sure. You know, I think um, I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, I definitely feel like 
the amount of social media that people are on, especially kids, are on all the time. Like, it, I literally want to slap my daughter's phone out of her hand, like, constantly. I was, like, taking her to school, and she's like, I'm like, what? Like, who are you sending all these weird half-face snapshots of? Sure. You know, and she's on Snapchat, like, send them to, like, all her little friends, and, like, they're, like, mimicking. They're like, look at this picture that my friend just sent. And she's, like, you know, got a picture of her. Her tongue is sticking out, or she's winking. or And then, like, Kyla's, like, mimics the same picture. I'm just like, what is that accomplishing? Like, really? I mean, I guess you're interacting with your with your friends, but put the phone down and just talk to your friend maybe when you get to school, you know? Yeah. So I definitely, I definitely feel like, you know, we're going to have a, a generation of kids that are walk around hunched over, you know, or, or a generation of adults that are hunched over because like all, all they do is this looking you know? at their phone, yeah. looking at their computer. No, I, I, I agree with that. And you know, I've, I've got two sons and they play video games, but we've also worked on, Hey, you got to get your head out in front of the computer screen. Yeah. And, we're going to go dirt bike, we're going to shoot, we're going to repair stuff, we're going to work on projects. And and their mom has done a great job with that, too. And, you know, when I look at it, it's like, man, you got to get out and live life as opposed to just watching it yeah. or reporting what you're supposedly doing. And yeah. I think that, you know, collectively, we've gotten so enamored with the media and so enamored with social media that the news is just this reporting. Yeah. And, and it's not really what's going on. There was a 17-year-old kid. We were doing a photo shoot, and it was down at one of the high schools closer to the border. And he was standing next to me, and uh, we were talking about what we watch on TV or what movies. There was a lull in, in, in the yeah. action. And uh, I said, I watch the news, documentary sports. And he's like, yeah, I don't watch the news because I don't want to get angry about things that aren't real. And this is a 17-year-old kid, right? And that was short, sweet, to yeah. the point. Yeah. Brilliant comment. Brilliant comment. Yeah. Well, you know, I appreciate you coming and joining us today. Um, you know, you shared a lot, and uh, I think people at home will learn a lot from this. Uh, you know, you see these movies and you think, oh, Navy SEAL. <laughs> Guys go in, and or, or the Bin Laden raid, right? Yeah. And uh, it's, all, it's all glory, and uh, there's a portion of that. And uh, I'm not going to say thanks for your service, but thanks for your service uh, to, to all of us so that you know, we can live uh, safely, make our own choices. You know, you tell everyone it's like freedom is the number of options you have. And, uh, you know, whenever we go into uh, Memorial Day and you go to one of the cemeteries, none of the tombstones there have whether the person was African-American, Native American, Armenian, Samoan, uh, none of that. Yep. And uh, all those people, you know, gave up something so that you can have more options. And, uh you know, we're happy that you're here and that uh, you're successful in your quest forward and, you know, supporting uh, us and uh, our quest to make sports more possible and safer for a larger number of kids so they can get out and play and develop some of the skills that, uh, you know, you have at a, at a much higher level. So, again, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming in today. And, um to everybody that's listening, you know, this was our first shot at it. Uh, hopefully we did a decent job and uh, you'll enjoy this. Um, we're probably going to have Kevin back to cover a variety of other topics and maybe drill a little bit deeper. Um, but uh, hopefully you, you take this one and uh, you save it and, uh, you know, you visit us. And when your kids need some sports equipment, you come to lighthelmets.com.
Uh, we didn't talk a lot about helmets today, but that was uh, that was intentional. Thanks again. Thanks, Kevin, for being with us. Absolutely.